1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 9. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul describes various types of people who, if they do not repent, will not experience heaven. In other words, here's a list of prevalent sins in Corinth in Paul's day that stand in the way of salvation. Now, to be sure, every sin stands in the way of salvation. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. Same chapter, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's not that this particular list that we're about to read is a list of unpardonable sins. But it's a list, like we find in some other places in the New Testament, that describes some well-known examples of the types of things that dishonor God and call for repentance. So let's look at the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, he says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now wrongdoers, the NIV is the word unrighteous. It's used to characterize the inhabitants of the world, meaning those who have not been brought into the kingdom of Christ. Think of the numerous places in the New Testament that describe a change in behavior, right, that that follows faith in Jesus. So if you're uh, taking notes, you may uh, jot down John 13, uh, 34 and 35, uh, or Ephesians 4, 17 and following, or or James chapter 2, verses 14 and following, places that clearly indicate in the the Bible that when someone comes to faith, genuine faith in Christ, uh, a change in life and behavior follows, we know this. We, we, we don't clean ourselves up and then come to Christ. Uh, we, we receive salvation by God's grace. And then His grace begins to work on us. His Spirit transforms us and conforms us more and more into the image and character of, of Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 6 contrasts these wrongdoers, verse 9, uh, with the Lord's people, verse 1. Or in other translations, the unrighteous are contrasted with the saints. And in this list of various kinds of sinners, four of the ten describe sexual sins, two of which describe homosexual conduct. Most of our English translations blur the two into one, but I'm willing to bet that many of your Bibles have a footnote that points you down to the bottom and it says something like the words men who have sex with men translate two Greek words that refer to the passive and active participants and homosexual acts. And so the first of those words, the first Greek word is malakos, and the second is arsenikoitos. Now you might say we're getting a little technical here. Why the Greek uh, language lesson? And here's why. In all seriousness, here's why. Because right here is a place where in the words of Scripture, the Bible is providing examples of people who will not be in heaven if they do not repent. And so we cannot afford to mess this up. This is what makes this a gospel issue and not a disputable matter like worship style or church leadership structure or the frequency with which we observe communion. 
You see, when it comes to clearly defined issues of sin, eternity is at stake. I'm not talking about believers admittedly struggling with sin. All of us do that. We're talking about calling sin good. And so the first term Paul uses here, malakos, means effeminate. And it was used in ancient Greek literature to describe men and boys who were sodomized by other males. It's also used in places to refer to male prostitutes, but that's probably too narrow of a translation for what Paul is describing here. In this context, Paul is probably using this word to describe the passive partner in homosexual relations. Now, the other word that's used, arsenicortes, combines the words for male and bed and refers to males who engage in sexual activity with a person of his own sex. So these two words, malakos and arsenicortes, are the two words used in the Greek translation of Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, the two texts that we looked at last week. And by using these two words together here, Paul is likely alluding to those passages and describing both the passive and active participants in male homosexual behavior. And so what are we to make of this? You see, if we take the plain reading of God's Word, if we take the plain reading of Scripture and stand under its authority, we must acknowledge, church, that homosexual sin is serious. It offends God. And those who practice it without repentance are lumped together with those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And to claim or to proclaim otherwise, as many supposed Christian leaders are doing today, is to sin and is the equivalent of sending people to hell. Saying, in essence, you don't need Jesus for that. The stuff about Jesus dying on the cross, that was for other things, but not this. God is okay with this. God is pleased with this. You don't need him for this. In such a perspective, those with such a perspective fall victim to deception and misrepresent God's truth. Do not be deceived, Paul says in verse 9. Paul assumes that there will be some who are deceived on this very issue. And the Bible again and again has strong words for those who practice false teaching and for churches who tolerate it. For an example, see Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 and following. But let's be careful here. We must be faithful to the full message of Scripture and we must acknowledge, church, that there is absolutely no room for self-righteousness here. None whatsoever. 1 Corinthians 6 is not about homosexuality. It is about sin that separates from right relationship with God. Homosexual behavior is, is one example in such a list. Meaning it is not a greater sin or a unique sin or the sin of our age. No, I'm pretty sure we don't have to look very far to find sexual immorality and idolatry and adultery and theft and greed and drunkenness and defamation and fraud. All of which Paul puts on the very same level as homosexual behavior. Friends, all of these offend God. Every one of these is an example of wickedness from which we need to repent and receive Jesus. And if you are a Christ follower, then you have. I have. 
No one is beyond rescue. No one is beyond forgiveness, salvation, and transformation. Drunkenness is not inescapable. Adultery is not inescapable. Homosexuality is not escapable. For Paul goes on, he says in verse 11, that is what some of you were. He says, that is what some of you were, but you were washed. And you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is saying that the behaviors described in verses 9 and 10 are not acceptable for Christians because these behaviors are inconsistent with who we are. We may have once been defined by these things. But I heard it said earlier today this way, that because of who Christ is and what He's done for me, because of salvation The things that describe me don't necessarily define me. Christ defines me. But Paul assumes some in his audience used to practice a gay lifestyle. But Paul says no more. He says this is not who you are anymore. You bear the name of Jesus. That's who you are. You are his. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. And you are set apart for him. We're not talking about the absence of temptation. We're not talking about a complete and sudden removal of feelings. But we're talking about a new identity in Jesus Christ. A taste of heaven where we will all be made right and and, and enjoy eternal life. Eternal life that's lived out according to God's glory and design, which is also for our good. Alright, we've looked at Genesis 19. We've looked at Leviticus 18, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 13. We've looked at Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. The final passage of Scripture that specifically addresses homosexuality is 1 Timothy chapter 1. So let's look at that text together. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes 1 Timothy, and he writes it to his son in the faith, Timothy, and his partner in the gospel he writes to instruct timothy to to stay in ephesus to remain in ephesus and to confront false teachers there in the church in order to guide a drifting congregation to return to gospel centeredness and sound doctrine and as paul describes these false teachers in the opening verses he mentions their misunderstanding of god's law and then he offers a brief explanation of god's law what is god's law what's it for First Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. He says, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And so like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, here we have another list of kinds of people engaging in sin, actions and inactions that are dishonorable to God and call for correction and repentance. And once again, this is not by any means an exhaustive list. But Paul is saying that God gives us his word to confront us in our sin to help us understand our errors and to invite us to receive his mercy and grace extended to us in the gospel of Jesus. 
And once again here he uses the word arsenicortes as a, a general term for those who practice homosexual behavior. And, and such sin is situated once again alongside other sexual and non-sexual sins. In essence, the scriptures teach here that all these behaviors and practices are contrary to sound doctrine. They're contrary to the gospel of Jesus. And they're contrary to new life that Christians have received in Jesus. So church, the teaching of scripture is clear here. Homosexual activity dishonors God. He forbids it. Of course, this doesn't mean that he approves of all heterosexual activity. The Bible is clear on this as well. God forbids all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. According to scripture, sexual immorality includes all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Be it pornography, adultery, fornication, cohabitation, lust, or homosexuality. Alright, so what about, some have asked, what about committed relationships? What about a committed same-sex relationship? What about a monogamous and faithful relationship? Could those be okay? And this is a good question. Many have attempted to defend that they are acceptable. Many have attempted to defend monogamous and committed same-sex relationships on the ground that Scripture doesn't address those specifically. In fact, some of the passages that we've looked at tend to imply casual and careless and promiscuous, even violent or forced homosexual activity. But to argue strictly from absence is poor interpretation. I think we know this and leads to all sorts of other possible interpretations that are clearly inconsistent with the message of God's word. For example, the Bible doesn't mention abortion directly. But we know from what it says about the value of human life that abortion dishonors God. The Bible may not mention euthanasia, but we know that the Bible teaches that life should be spared and saved where possible. And so we oppose euthanasia. There is one passage that is instructive for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So you may want to look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that addresses... uh, improper sexual relationship and has some ramifications for the question we're asking about committed and faithful monogamous homosexual relationships. Let's listen to what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, he says, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning. And have put out of your fellowship. The man who has been doing this. So here's a man in relationship with his father's wife. Probably the man's stepmother. Here's a relationship. We, we don't know much about this relationship. That's really all that we're told right here. But this is a type of relationship that's specifically forbidden in Leviticus where the law describes various types of sexual sin. And Paul cannot believe the church is turning a blind eye to this because even unbelievers condemn such behavior. But notice that Paul doesn't ask if the couple is committed. 
He doesn't ask if the couple is in love or faithful to each other. No such question because that's not the point. For all we know, they are committed. For all we know, they are in love. And it is a monogamous relationship. The point is this type of sexual relationship is wrong. Whether it's faithful and committed or reckless and casual. It doesn't matter. See, when it comes to sexual relationships, faithfulness to one another is not the determination of rightness or wrongness. But faithfulness to God and His Word on marriage is. Now, what about Jesus? Does Jesus address this issue? Does Jesus mention homosexuality? In fact, I've had conversation with someone before about this very issue that wrestles with this. And this individual told me, well, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. Jesus is Lord. I, I look at the red letters. I look at what Jesus says about this. And I don't see anywhere that Jesus addresses this issue. And unlike Paul, Jesus never mentions homosexual behavior specifically. But he does speak clearly on the subjects of marriage and sexual immorality. It's recorded in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 and following. Jesus states this. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. He says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Jesus says all of these come from inside and defile a person. And so here we have a list of sinful behaviors, according to Jesus, that defile a person. Meaning these behaviors make them spiritually unclean before God. And three of them refer to sexual sin. Sexual immorality. Adultery and lewdness. Again, a reminder for us and every reader of God's word that God takes sexual sin seriously. As previously stated, the word translated sexual immorality is important for our understanding of Jesus' message. It's the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. And it refers to all sexual activity and conduct outside of marriage. Some translations translate it fornications, which of course refers to sexual activity between two people who are not married to one another. Jesus' audience knew this. They knew what this term meant and they would have understood pornea to include homosexual behavior. In fact, think of it this way. David Eanes, our minister of children and family, uh, announced to uh, his uh, class tonight, our kids tonight, and said, uh, at the end of uh, class, I'm going to uh, give you all a popsicle. But he didn't announce, he didn't mention individual names. But even so, all the attendees, all the classmates, all the kids in the room would, would know that, that he or she is included. They would know that he, he means, I'm going to get one of these. In other words, he doesn't have to name our children's names directly because his general announcement includes all the kids in the class. And likewise, Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality directly, but his choice of language includes it. Let's look at one last text tonight that helps 
clarify Jesus' message on this. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked about divorce. So he's having a conversation on marriage and divorce. An instance where Pharisees and teachers of the law wanted to test Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, it says some Pharisees came to Jesus to test Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And then... After anchoring marriage in God's design from the beginning, and we've already covered that a couple sessions ago, but after anchoring marriage in God's design from uh, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, Jesus continues in verse 9. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Verse 10, the disciples said to Jesus, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, It is better not to marry. In other words, the disciples' response to Jesus indicates that marriage is hard. Challenging marriages, difficult marriages. This is not a 21st century phenomenon. It's been hard ever since sin entered the human race. And so the disciples essentially say because marriage is hard and because divorce is dishonorable to God, it's better not to even get married. And notice how Jesus responds to that. Verse 11, Jesus replies. He says, not not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus' day, eunuchs were those without the capacity for sexual relations as a result of either a birth defect or castration or a voluntary life of sexual abstinence. And so Jesus essentially says, God created us male and female and he gave us the institution of marriage. But, he says, there are some who choose to forego marriage for the sake of the gospel. As one author states it, one marries or remains single. There is no third possibility, whether of a homosexual partnership or a heterosexual unmarried partnership. As far as Jesus is concerned, the godly alternatives before us are heterosexual marriage or celibacy. So if you are married, glorify God in your marriage. If you are single, glorify God in your singleness. Whichever the case, may we be a people who strive to bring glory and honor to the name of the Lord. Amen? Well, next week, next week in our final session, we're going to look at a Christian response to homosexuality. So I hope you'll join us next week. Before we conclude tonight, we're going to sing a hymn together. Last week we began with a hymn. Tonight we're going to end with a hymn. Grace is greater than all our sin. What number is it? 586. Church, would you stand and sing together? Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for the riches of your grace that you have lavished upon us as your word declares.
Father, we thank you for your patience, your compassion, your kindness to us. Father, help us to be a people who are overwhelmed with your goodness to us and long to follow after you. Long to to serve you and to live for you. To repent of where we are in error and to run after Jesus. Lord, give us the strength and the desire to do so. Lord, may we be faithful to you and your word. Guide us now as we depart from this place, as we go, bearing your name. Help us to do so in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray.